Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with one of these surprise guests. We met a few years ago at DragonCon, and Chuck Gannon has rapidly grown to be a great friend. I absolutely fell in love with his first book that he told me, he suggested I read, Fire with Fire, which we're going to talk about. But just a bit of an overview, uh, Dr. Charles E. Gannon, friends call him Chuck, uh, has this series called Kane Riordan, um, published by Bain Books, and they've all been national bestsellers and include four finalists for the Nebula, two for the Dragon Award, and a Compton Crook winner. In 2020, the Kane verse expanded into an exclusive imprint, Beyond Terra Press, under the aegis of Chris Kennedy Publishing. It has already brought the essential side series Murphy's Lawless to readers, has a second season in process, and is also reissuing the anthology Lost Signals of the Terran Republic. Gannon's epic fantasy series The Vortex of Worlds debuts in 2021. He collaborates with Eric Flint, one of our winners and now one of our uh, judges. He's also a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling Ring of Fire series author. And he's written two solo novels in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising World, and co-authored three volumes in the Starfire series. Another thing about which makes, I think, this interview with Chuck so important, he's a distinguished professor of English. Uh, he's received five Fulbrights. His book, Rumors of War and Infernal Machines, won the 2006 ALA Choice Award for Outstanding Book. He's a frequent subject matter expert for national media venues, NPR, Discovery, etc., and for various intelligence and defense agencies. He resides in Annapolis, Maryland, with his wife and four living children. Welcome, Chuck. Well, thanks for having me on, John. Yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited about this. After I finished reading your book, it's, it's, it's been a little bit now, but it was like, wow. I was like, I was really surprised because I think English professor and my English teachers in school were always not good writers and you seem to have broken <laughs> that mold. Uh, well, uh, I guess you could say it's probably because the writer came first and the English professor came second, uh, both in terms of in terms of the chronology, if you will, if you were to look at my CV, as well as my intent. Uh, becoming a, a professor was always, you know, when I was thinking of doing that back in in the days before uh, before the internet and arguably electricity and even dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> in in those days, if if you wrote a book a year. Or certainly, if you wrote three books every two years, you were you were going to have a, a, a great career. That has obviously changed. Um, the pickup in the genre, the fact that it came out of the ghetto and sort of is now, you know, if you just take a look at the movies and you take a look at your top ten uh, all-time grocers, and one of the things you're going to see right away is that uh, this genre is not in this genre is now in, in occupies the highest real estate, I guess you could say, in the entire cinematic uh, in the cinematic marketplace, and and certainly it is it is expanded significantly on uh, on you know on the on the publishing side as well, and and the the overlap between the two. The, that tangent explains why in 1982 1983 it seemed like a perfectly reasonable. 
uh, notion to say, well, uh, I'll, I'll be a professor, perhaps, if I need to be, and I could still write a book, and I can still have a career, and I can transition into that later if that's what's required. Um, by the time that I, uh, and, and I had a very good, I had a perfectly good freelance career, Was I just had books under contract, and a couple of things happened above me on the uh, tree of organization in the, the two, uh, two imprints where I was going to be, those books were going to be coming out, and they were terminated. Um, having, having really, it was turf. It wasn't me. It wasn't the projects. It was turf stuff. Uh, but that didn't matter to me because I was high and dry. So by the time I got back in the electronic wave had begun to swell. And we're of course in an era now where, uh, where you, uh, you, you have to be, uh, you have to be pretty entrepreneurial. Uh, thankfully I, I guess I was uh, my career in television uh, my career as a freelancer before I was ever a professor. Really, I think, uh, who knew it at the time? For me, I was just frustrated. But now it turns out to have been great preparation. Uh, so that's how I came to be where I am. And I guess broke the mold because I, I wasn't poured into it. I fit myself into it as a as I sort of backed into it, I guess you'd say. Well, that's great because it's, like I said, it, it so is not the mold of these professors that I had and I grew up with because they're always they're always looking for the hidden significances and and what was Dante really trying to say or what was you know any other essentially great authors but they were really going for a lot more than than potentially what they're trying to put there absolutely and I will say this much I think um if you're familiar with the book of, of all things to pull in the little prince by Saint Rupert uh, one of the things that I like about that book, and I think some of the best books that I've read, is that you can come back to them at different times, and you appreciate different things in them. I can tell you right now that there are Easter eggs, mostly had, that have not yet been found in all five books of that series, and they are they're quite deliberate. But I believe that good story, if you have things you would like to advance thematically they will destroy the story in the same way that a uh, an auto uh, you know somebody who's uh, who's too pleased with the sound of their own voice will destroy an interview i guess kind of like what i'm doing right now <laughs> um, so so at any rate that was a long setup for that joke but there you go uh, so, so anyhow that's 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 it's there it's not entirely gone but uh but i'm i'm careful about it i will not let that overpower and uh, and fundamentally uh destroy what's really important which is story yeah absolutely so i'll use that as a bridge and segue over now into fire with fire so that was the first book of yours that i read on your recommendation and it was a great first read so how did you get into that one i mean that one there is it's I guess that's why CIA pulls you in for stuff because you you know so much about it or something like that or what's it's it's, it's kind of hard to say that was a very very circuitous route um, I actually I'll tell you the first public reading of anything that appeared in um, in Fire with Fire actually occurred occurred as part of a, a, a symposium an annual symposium at the National Reconnaissance Office. 
having to do with essentially assisted or cooperative automation, what's called Centaur systems, or at least what was called Centaur systems at that time, which is human-machine interface, how do you get the best out of both worlds, which early on there's a scene which deals with that. So uh, that was kind of a first, and that's about as I signed NDA, so I think I've come right up to the line of what I can talk about. But yeah, that's sort of where things, uh, where, where things, it was being informed by those, um, but then also more people in the community, I guess, read the book, and uh, and that's led to a sort of ongoing discourse with the community, which is a, uh, um, you know, the sort of thing that I, I derive a great deal of of satisfaction and education from, in addition to whatever uh, meager contributions I can make to uh, to the, I guess, the sort of think tanks that uh, that are that what that will reach out and and summon folks from the science fiction community, which is not as rare as it, uh, it might sound or certainly once was. So, um, so yeah, and there is a bunch of field craft in there. And I knew that if I was going to get something wrong, I, I had a bunch of people who'd be saying, Chuck. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I felt the thing on my shoulder. Yeah, that's one thing that's, that's for certain. I've had several of our judges, too, who have talked about the need to get it right. And a good story can, like, can handle certain transgressions, but it's yeah. still you have to have the basics there. But um, it's got to be believable in the story. As you were saying before, story is is paramount. It's the thing that's really important on getting across. And that's, you know, I know there was a lot more science and technology in that book that you had awareness of we're talking about that others could go, wow, he's got uh, XYZ factor which would be way over my head, I just enjoyed story. And evidently others have as well that you then have gone on now and it's, it's, had, it's enjoyed quite a life you know, in that series. It, it has, and actually it's, it's interesting that uh, usually series, uh, most series that, are, that do very well, will, will, they'll have an immense amount of initial velocity and then they're running to keep up. This has been, my attitude is, I would, if, it's a, if a winning season for me is singles and doubles baseball? You know what? I don't care if I don't hit home runs. <laughs> yeah, no. You know, just don't strike me out, and and I'll I'll you know I'll I'll take it all the way through to the playoffs, and that's that's kind of what has fortunately been going on with this. And regarding the science that's in it, that's one of those other things which I guess the. There's also the 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 person the 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 science and policy person in me uh, also puts a lot of stuff in there for folks who know it who know what to look for they'll find it but I think more important even than that is that I believe that that readers so my my basic attitude is you can you it is almost impossible to overestimate a reader by which I mean if if you're making something up readers going to know it. Even if they don't know the science, they can tell, I think, by the writer's diction and the way they present it, whether they are on solid ground or whether they're trying to skate. You know, yeah, they for sure. For sure. Before they get off. So I can tell you the economics of everything that's going on in that book and why the nations are in the, in the sort of counterpoises that they are. But you know what? That wasn't essential to the story. We have these things called websites now. So if people want to actually find out what was going on and, and they show up more in other books, which I think has been part of the appeal of the series. I don't think the series is going to appeal to everybody. It's frequently labeled as a space opera. I think that's 
that's a borderline accurate term in the sense that you'll notice that the word science is not in the genre title space opera. Space right. is, opera is, <laughs> not right. science. Right. Um, and so, so mine is a little bit, I would say I take at least as much from the, the sort of what I'll call the vibe of um, Tom Clancy, Larry Bond, techno thrillers, if you will, cutting edge techno thrillers, as I take from space opera, because I think that um, that's something that uh, that I I miss sometimes, and so they always say, write what you you wish you were reading. So I did. Well, that's great. That's great. So, what sparked you to write Fire with Fire in that whole series? You know that that's a. Okay, this is one of those moments where, like I said, the best way to kill an interview is ask a, a garrulous author a, a wide-open question, and you just did that. But I'm going to, therefore, I'm going to work against my flow and, and say it that the roots of that series, one of the characters in that book, you may remember Nolan Corcoran, sure. who, no spoilers, but uh, he's, he's somebody who's sort of, he's, a, he's an architect of much of what helps humanity the most in his in his after he's passed on or assassinated as the case may be and uh, that character first showed up when i wrote a a novella a very long novella as part of a final project when i was an undergrad that we're going back to the 1980s now and uh, and then he showed up in a screenplay that i wrote set on the l5 station of uh, the stanford taurus of lagrangian point that that whole o'neill uh, sort of space station notion, and there was he didn't he didn't wind up being the major character, it, but there was something in that entire vibe that that just kept speaking to me. And the the thing that I decided I really wanted to do, and I, I lit upon the Kane character, in sort of in a couple of different ways. Um, one, I wanted to create a character who uh, is not a uh, and it's it's fascinating the number of reviews who liken him to Jason Bourne or James Bond which I kind of I kind of find amusing and the reason I say that is because if you take a look at the moments where he's actually wielding a gun or, <laughs> or trying to yeah. or trying to fight do that sort of stuff he is by no means an expert at it he he's smart he will set up a situation that favors his strengths and sort of maximizes his uh, opponent's weaknesses. But that's really, he owes far more to that, to, to successful outcomes than anything else. And as the series goes on, uh, I wanted to invert a couple of things. I wanted somebody who, therefore, what they had the most of was a sort of, uh, they, were, they were probably usually one of the sharpest knives in the drawer you know, in, in any given drawer that they would go to. And if not the sharpest, then certainly in the running. Uh, I wanted that. And one of the reasons I wanted that was because I also didn't want this person to be a general. I didn't. One of the things you'll see, I think, in a lot of series is you get what I will call the, the promotion inflation issue, which is they start out as like a sergeant and then they're promoted to a lieutenant and then they become a captain. And, and somehow as they go up the ranks, even to becoming a general or the political or, you know, or, or agency equivalent of all that, somehow they're still in the field. Well, that's just not how things happen. Right. So, so I wanted to craft a character that would not essentially promote out of the field. So what I, I decided on was I was going to get this individual who was sort of the right person in the wrong place at the right time, who is successful in their in the in humanity's first first contact, and then keeps getting pushed back into that because after all, 
there's really no way to sort of, you know, Earth doesn't have any university programs for first contact. And and as very often is the case with overburdened governments confronted with a, a, a crisis, if Riordan keeps doing the job, we'll just have Riordan keep doing the job. We've got other fish to fry. And Riordan at various points says, you guys have got to make me replaceable. Well, they don't listen until it's a little too late, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted all that, and the reason I wanted that was because there are uh, – I wanted to create a character that reminded me of – I didn't come up out of fandom, but I will say that there are two places I, I feel tremendously like I'm, I'm in my tribe. And my, the two places I feel in my tribe is when I go to CIA headquarters and I walk through those cubicles, not because of all the brain power that's there, although that would certainly be enough, but they're being asked to think outside the box. And if you look at their cubicles, the amount of art and artifacture and references to science fiction and fantasy culture, but particularly science fiction there, is just immense. And it's it's one of the things I actually talk about in my nonfiction that this this drumbeat of future think is very much in certain certain elements of policy making as well, um, and increasingly so since the second second world war. And the other and so that also makes me the other place I feel at home is is with fans at science fiction conventions. Even though I didn't grow up that way, uh, there are greedy and eager intelligences in almost every one of those bodies walking around. And one of the other things they all have in common is they all don't just tolerate alterity, they seek it out. They want to know what's over the next horizon. Um, and that's that's actually a fairly, as somebody who worked in television, that's a fairly rare thing. You almost never advertise, at least you didn't, to people who actually liked things being different. Um, they're a very hard group to sell to because of a variety of personality traits and 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 sort of approaches to the world that they have. Um, so I wanted to create a character where a lot of individuals who fell into one of those two categories would look at this character, Kane Rior, and say, yeah, I get that. I get that. I think that if I was in that situation, I might be able to do the same thing because it's all about your brains, really, and your yeah. nerve. Yeah, it definitely was that. Now, one thing, too, about your books, and your, um, I've only read the one so far, is your, your ability to deal with other worlds, other, other races. And, you know, we've got what we've grown up with, with Star Trek and Star Wars and whatnot, what, you know, the, what those are. And there's nobody to say that that is or isn't what's going to happen. And then you've got within the paranormal community, you've got um, the greys and you've got the different what's been reported on in, in those encounters. And then you got what you've done yourself with creating these, this hu I guess it's a humongous uh, exobiosphere and the exosapiens, what you did and the logic behind why they are what they are. So I think that's something that I've not spoken about with anyone yet. And I think this is a fantastic subject and something that people need to do. And it, it's one thing that makes your book it makes us. I'm not even. I'm not even thinking that I'm that I'm disbelieving anything. That there's anything after that I have to disbelieve and just. I can just read your book and be like, wow, okay, that that works. That works. And I can see that, and it's 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 a plausible world that you've created there. So, how do you do that? Um, the, it, actually, I, I <laughs> that's a. I get that question a bunch. Uh, I, I would say by by um, by not really focusing on the enormity of the task. And realizing that there's some great benchmarks out there that that um, for instance, so one of the things I do when we're talking about exo exosapiens, um, uh, alien intelligences, if you will, 
is, uh, is I, I go to what I call the 2001 model. And what I mean by that is, in, in, for those folks, anybody who hasn't seen Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 really should. Um, whether you like it or not, it, it, is a, it is an extraordinarily well-constructed film, and it will blow you away when you think of the year in which it was constructed, which I, I think is like 71, 70, something like that. Yeah. I can't remember exactly. So there are going to be a million people who hear this well thousands who will say that guy's dead wrong and they're right i'm dead wrong I, I can't remember the name the year rather of it but 2001 a space odyssey begins um with uh, essentially how humanity goes from being at the edge of extinction to becoming the dominant species it was a 1968 and, film i just checked oh, see there you go i was gonna say that i couldn't believe it was i was only eight when i saw that film but i was i saw it when it was first out scared me to death uh, for a variety of reasons, I won't I won't go into. But it's certainly when you if you see that film and you think about being an eight year old in nineteen you know, sixty eight, uh, with growing up in a Roman Catholic household, and there was something so incredibly convincing about this vision of how we came about and why we're here. It's a, it's kind of uh, it's kind of the equivalent of in your own culture having culture shock. So that was my experience. And but what he does, what uh, Stanley Kubrick does in that first part of the of two thousand one, in showing you how humanity goes from being a on the border of extinction to how it survives, is what I call the dawn of intelligence story. And every race is going to have its own dawn of intelligence stories because no two species are ever going to have the same challenge. Whether that involves manipulable digits, whether it involves tool use right away, that, that may or may not be the case. But at some point, what we see is in nature, and most, most biologists will tell you that the brain is an extremely voracious or, uh, organ in the body. It, the amount of time it takes to develop, the amount of nourishment it requires, the amount of space it requires, um, if, it, if the capacity for thought is not an evolutionary plus, the likelihood that this is going to occur is, is, is really low. In at least evolutionary theory would suggest that it's a low percentage possibility. But once a species stumbles into that, in this case, the use of tools, uh, the use of tools to defend themselves, and then also shortly thereafter, the first kin slaying, um, in one of the most brilliant moments in cinematic history, in my opinion, which I won't, uh, which I won't wax, you know. <laughs> enthusiastic about at this particular right. moment, uh, is is that. It, it defines how our use of hands and our use of tools changed us. And it actually set the course of so much of what we became and the way we look at the world and the way we shape the world. And so what I do when I'm starting with an alien species, exosapient, uh, is, to, is to say, what's their dawn of intelligence story? And, I, I, and one of the things I do is I look at, I, I, I also, I do. I actually use randomization quite a bit. Uh, what I mean by that is, when I design a planet, I don't so much design it as I kind of. I have a, a, a spreadsheet, and I'll throw numbers in. Now I know it's got to be a habitable biosphere, but to some degree, I let the numbers tell me, and I'll tell you why I do that. I, I think that that the hand of the artist can sometimes be heavy upon the narrative. And what I mean by that is it's just so convenient, you know, <laughs> that, that the star is here and they're like this and they have that much water and everything is orchestrated for the author to tell the story. I find a great deal of freshness in having certain facts thrown at me that I have to contend with because I think 
That's how the universe works. And, th- and I think that's one of those things that readers sense, that this is not, everything is not artifice. Some of this is just confronting factors. So in the case of these different species, I'm going to take a look at the star they come from. I'm looking at the amount of, of water there is um, and, and what sort of species is likely to evolve through their motility and, and a variety of other things. And then I get to, you know, are the, what are they? Are they omnivores? Are they carnivores? Are they herbivores? And, and all of these things. And I'll ask myself, where where did where, at what point were they did they almost go extinct and how did intelligence become the thing that kept them alive and successful um so that's how i build them on one end um and on the other end i i don't drive myself mad with with improbables and what i mean by that is um without going into uh going into this in a long way if, if for anybody who's interested i suggest they go to a nasa site on exobiology one of the first things you run into when you when you look there is that carbon when you get right down to it carbon is a building block that is not only rare on the table in terms of the way it can it's both it it both organizes things and keeps things stable but it's also capable of change you want that because life is dynamic life is not static so that's what you've got. So in, in that situation, then you start looking at other elements. And you've heard these in, in science fiction. For instance, Star Trek used, used silicon, right? The Horta, I think, was in the original series. And they actually did a better job of it, I'd say, than most. Because one of the things they portray is that it, it takes a lot of heat. Even so, the difficulty with, with silica, silica doesn't become, silicon doesn't become uh, essentially like carbon in the way that it will give things up and add things and create what I'll call flexible structure until it's at something like 400 degrees. I can't remember if it's Fahrenheit or centigrade. There's a difficulty with that. Whereas in order for life to exist, there has to be, a, there has to be a metabolism. That means for us, water. There is really no thing that we know of that would work like water for silicon. So one of the things that that I just basically do is I actually think that while Star Trek may be, and a lot of other science fiction is criticized for putting people in rubber suits and this, that, and the other thing, and I and and the lack of imagination and perhaps spending on special effects that comes under critique there, I also will say there's a lot of reason why, for instance, even our own our, our scientists who are involved in exoplanet searches right now, they're interested in what they call planets in the Goldilocks zone, which for those who might not be familiar with that phrase, that's that place in the orbit of a star where a planet is where water is neither is neither vaporized nor is it frozen, that it is in liquid medium, because at that point you have the the what I would call the metabolic medium you need for carbon to become life. And so uh, these are the sort of things. So on the one hand, I say that actually limits a lot of those sort of wilder things that I think are lower percentage elements. And then I've got that uh, dawn of intelligence story. And between the two things, I guess you could say I argue from either end of that telescope to a, a hopefully rich and satisfying and believable center for <laughs> for my readers. Yeah. No, you do. And that that's good in that. But then you take it and you do these twists to it. So now... You've got the personalities of the people themselves. They're not just straight. Okay, now here is this exosapient. He's now, this person here is, uh, like, he's devious, he's covert, he's, you know, you don't know what he is. And what's, especially when there was, uh, you know, the meetings with the, um, with the various other races, 
But even on the on the one that he's just founding, the the one that he's just finding the uh, was it? He goes to that one planet and he has to do find out that they are that there are um, exosapiens there. But there's the energy company that's trying to hide it because they're trying to export all their that's where they want their energy from fuel. Yes, um, isn't that because there you've, yes, there you've got a very low level. You got a very primitive exosapien, although they have an amazing ritual. But then you got when they when they then later on in that first book, and he meets then with the other other races. They are very evolved. They're they're very. They have you know they they put Machiavelli to shame on. They <laughs> <laughs> do. Some of them do. Some of them do. That's, it's like wow. It's like where are these people coming from? And it's just it's a whole new level. It's not just you've created. Here's a, here's something that could grow up that way in the intelligence, but then how it, how it evolves, and then how it impacts on earth i mean that's that's amazing it's taken to whole new levels it's not just like the the simple you know star trek but it's taken to a whole new level now of of um expertise i guess on on creating these worlds and these peoples that and how they interact with us and i'm going to jump in there john and say that everything that you thought you was was set in the by the end of the first book i'm going to strongly I will. I will ask you if you can, in your impossibly busy schedule, to you're only the president of a press for crying out loud, <laughs> is to read the second book because so many of the things you think you know will get stood straight on their ear. Uh, that that race that you discover on that planet is not as primitive as they think, and the race that looks so Machiavellian is perhaps not as alien as it seems. That's all I'm going to say. No spoilers, but hopefully enough to bait the hook. <laughs> that if I, if I can't reel you in, maybe somebody out there in podcast listener land will get reeled in with that one. No, no doubt, because that's just, those, that whole series there is just such an amazing, um, the fire with fire. Is that, is that what it's called, the, uh, the fire? Uh, no, the series, well, you know what's a funny thing about the, the series? The, the series is, was it initially called, it was known by that term, Fire with Fire. The second book was Trial by Fire. Yeah. I was worried people were going to ask me to name the third book Pants on Fire or something like that. But So I was, uh, I was moving away from that right away. Yeah, they got raise, uh, Raising Cain. So. Raising Cain, yeah. Cain's Mutiny, and then Mark of Cain. Um, and... Uh, what what basically has happened is originally I called the Tales of the Terran Republic. I dropped. I didn't want to do Tales, but I was recommended for that because somebody was concerned that anything with the word Republic in it was going to get confused with Star Wars. That certainly did not happen. So I just shortened it to the Terran Republic series. But about the time that was happening, about the time between the second and the third book, people started calling it the Caneverse. Now. I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> I would have never had the nerve to do that. But for science fiction readers out there who know the of the Honor Harrington series, and people ultimately named it the Honorverse for David Weber, my friend, sure. uh, who's, who's been a big, big fan. I'm a fan of his. He's a fan of mine. We appear in each other's books. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's that sort of thing. But they called it the Honorverse. And you know what? My attitude is, if your fans are so enthusiastic about the thing that they brand the series with the name of the protagonist. I am neither, who am I to argue? And why would I be so stupid as to argue? Yeah. Because every time they say it, 
they're basically doing free advertising. So please, thank you very much, folks, for calling it the Caneverse, which is kind of what it's called now. There are the Kane universe, the Kane Riordan novels, which are what would be called the main arc of the series. But there's now uh, there was an anthology in which Kane figured almost not at all, which was called Lost Signals. Uh, and now there's just this year we've we're just in the process. Uh, three days from now, another novel drops called Murphy's Lawless which is set in the same universe but is also integrally important even though almost no there there's very little character crossover um what's going on in this other series has tremendous bearing upon what goes on in the main arc and uh, we did this as six novellas over the from starting with march so it was a covid baby uh and we just the last one was in august and then i took them and put them together in a novel with about 50,000 words of additional content and that drops like i said in three or four days so uh it's it's growing in ways i never anticipated but i'm i'm not not crying a tear over that i'm i'm simply wondering i feel like i fell into a pot of jam as the english say so well all right <laughs> into your jam you go okay so is this one of the topics that you cover in your workshops routinely the topic of the exobiospheres and exosapiens. Oh, um, it depends. Uh, for instance, I've, I've done several where I do exactly that. If I'm dealing with world building, uh, that occurs, but it, it's actually kind of, it falls later on a list. For instance, when people are saying, you know, oh, I'm going to write in a fantasy or science fiction universe, I say, and they say, so I've got to build a world. And I say, do you? <laughs> they say, what do you mean? I say, well, that's a lot of work. And you got to ask yourself how much work you're going to do. If you're, for instance, if you know or you want to leave open the possibility that you're writing a series, then probably you do have reason to build the world and build it out. On the other hand, I think there are more novels which have not been written because writers or new writers usually don't know when to, I would say, both take refuge in the safety of world building and also the joy of it, and actually turn and tell a story in that world. So if you've only got, so the first question I think that, that I ask in, a, in, a, in a, a workshop is, do, I, do you need a world? Then the next question is, how much world do you need? Uh, and how do you start? And my attitude is there's a, there's a really fast rubric. There was a, uh, an, educated, uh, um, an educational philosopher, pedagogical philosopher by the name of Albert North Whitehead, who said that all education moves in three phases, and you'll see these phases macro and micro, and it's romance, precision, and generalization. And what he meant by that is romance is that learning phase where you want this is what you do with your little kids, right? This is and and older people too. You know, give them their introduction to the topic should should wet their whistle. It should be exciting. It should be fun. It should be finger painting. It should be you know going out and hiking or making your own thing. And you know, in other words, engage the romance of it. The precision is the point where you say, okay, so you're hooked. You're going to do it. Now you have to do the hard work. Generalization is where you're taking the sort of the nuts and the bolts, the what science did I need? Did I need to figure out a, a magic system? How does economy work on this world? And once you've you've had that romance and once you've done that that precision work, then you start to generalize. You start to combine those two things and you let the world sort of grow up, if you will, out of this out of this rich, fertile bed of thought and enthusiasm and preparation that you've put together. So that's really where I start. And then it then then there are further questions after that, but we don't have this is this is an interview, not a workshop. So I'm gonna shut up now. <laughs> 
So with respect to, because the people who are going to be listening to this are aspiring writers and, and it's, it's a, I'm just, I'm so happy to have someone who is so knowledgeable in this area of, of the world building. Now, what about Xeno world building? Can you talk about that uh. a bit? Well, first of all, I was—I'm still not sure who you're talking about about having somebody on your podcast who's so knowledgeable about it. Uh, so when they come on, please let me know because um, I ain't that guy. Let that's, me tell you that's strike two. It's, okay. <laughs> so the thing is, you know, the thing is that that the more you do this, the more you learn. It's it's like you know, it's like the Greek philosopher said: the more you the more you learn, the more you learn you you have to learn. And and so anybody who guts into this and actually. If you actually feel that you've attained master status, then you need to stop drinking your own Kool-Aid there. <laughs> yeah. And you know, re reapproach all the all the things none of us know. We're we're just we're doing our best. When it becomes when you get into the Xeno part of things, now you're you're getting into that aspect of you have to ask questions you don't have to ask about this planet. For instance, if uh, you know uh, what gravity, because gravity is going to change things. Um, and, and you have to start learning a little bit about, about basics of how planetary formation works. For instance, you know, people say, darn, why doesn't Mars have a, have a better atmosphere? That's just bad luck. No, it's not just bad luck. Mars is going to, you could put all the oxygen you would want there, all the atomic oxygen, gaseous atomic O2 there you want. And for a while it would be great. But the problem is that Mars gravity there's something called minimum molecular retention. What that's a long 25 cent or $25 word for is the gravity enough to keep that particular gas in the atmosphere. And weak gravity loses loses the the heavier the heavier things. Um, that's why when you when you go to these, you know, that, well, I'm going to back away from that because there there are a whole bunch of counterintuitive things in there. The bottom line is if you sighted something on Mars, and it had an atmosphere, even you know, as as heavy as, for instance, the one that that we're walking around, you're walking around in in L.A., or I'm walking around in at damn near sea level at, at Annapolis. You have to explain how that happened, because there isn't enough gravity. Now, could the planet be that small? Why, sure, it could be that small if it is made of more dense materials, because gravity is a function of volume and density. Now, if this is making you say, "Oh my gosh, do I have to go back to science class?" The answer is yes and no. The, and why I say it's yes and no is you don't need to know all the calculations to get a basic grasp of how it works. A lot of games have done a lot of work with this. There's a lot of stuff that's been put online now for folks who want to, who want to know, well, if I had a planet that was the size of, of Earth, but it was you know, half as dense, what would its gravity be? And what gases would it be able to retain in its atmosphere? Guess what? There's software out there that will do that for you, and that's because of a we live in the i we live in the 21st century. We get this instead of flying cars, although they're apparently coming soon. Although I'll bet they're delivered on trucks. Um, and uh, and and the fact that you this is part of what's happened in this incredible out you know, upsurge of interest in science fiction and fantasy to to figure out nuts and bolts. And on the soft one side, to go on the other end, because I was talking the really sort of hard science that then you get into the question of so let's say you've you've decided as one of the as is the case with one of the species that you saw in the first book is subterranean. A subterranean species, how will they evolve? 
What sort of things are going to be important to them? What would be important to us that would be not important to them? I'll give you an example. If you're subterranean, your need for visible light is probably pretty low. Your need for IR, assuming that you're not talking, even if you're talking about reptiles, anything that stands out from the background radi from the background radiance, in this case thermal radiation, is going to be is going to be a very valuable thing. But that actually means that all the things when we think about beauty, right? When humans talk about beauty, we normally, are, for most humans who who are who are you know who have the fortune of being full abled, we probably think of things we've seen. Well, if you're a subterranean dweller, what do you think about? And so one of the things that I thought about is that in the same way that they would, they would have fairly rudimentary sight, what they would probably have is a lot of what bats have. They have incredibly, in, incredibly fine hearing, and their ability to create a picture, if you will, with sound makes up for a lot of their, their sensory deprivation because of, of grow, essentially living in the dark. And what I realized is that whereas, for instance, sexual attractors for human beings are very heavily cued at distance to, to, to how, we, how we appear, I sat there and I thought, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if for them it's how beautifully they sing. And so that's an example of the ways that if you want to, if you want to, you know, at the other end of the, the, the sort of the social, the, the end of the spectrum and how, how, where an intelligence develops, leaves its finger or claw print, as the case may be, yeah. on the species that, that develops there. Well, that makes a lot of sense, actually, just thinking through just what is basically the viewpoint, what, what's going to be their perspective of, of life. So then on, because there is that subject, it, I mean, it's throughout your, at least the first book, is that whole Xeno perspective that you've yes. got there on dealing with the aliens to the humans and humans to aliens, not just humans, among, and then humans amongst humans, the, the yes. oil magnets yes. with the uh, people that want to not have that, other forms of, of, um, yep. of energy. That's fascinating. Yeah. So that's... But that's something too that when someone wants to look at creating that, it's not so much because I had I've had a similar um, like on Larry Niven speaking with him about how he created Ring World and he had right, like sure. you, like you said with you have to, you do have to do the homework and he said he had to do his work on it to find out so how big would that ring have to be and he said he on his first book he got it wrong on on earth was spinning the wrong direction and things so you it is important to have that because it was such good story he was forgiven a lot of stuff some stuff he wasn't but you know that's why i wasn't sure how much science below or above what i'm seeing in it is in your book and how vital that is to make a good story because we've already established that story is senior but and it i think it is i think if what you're going for is something that makes if you want to go to a world where things are absolutely not as they are and they and it is just one cornucopia of it could be magical wonders after another which i think can be a great read um that is one that is something for for one kind of one kind of mood right yeah, there's or, there's or, narnia there's narnia yeah Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And 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 things things even you know more florid, if you will, than that. Um, but if what you want is a, a a world that feels real, that you can sort of my my attitude is this, and and having worked in games as well, probably 
had an impact on me with this. I think I'm doing my job, at least at the most basic level, when somebody puts the book down and they realize they, it's, it almost feels like a shock coming back into this one. That immersivity, to be immersed, is, is, that, is to, that key to me. If I'm doing that, I think I've done my job right. And for science fictional immersion, where it really is science fictional, to me, it, that's where the, you know, no offense to Tom Clancy, you know, <laughs> people, people have said, wow, it reminds me of Clancy. And I said, boy, I hope that. I hope my characterization, <laughs> my dialogue is better than that. Um, maybe it's not. But, uh, but the thing is that there's a, there's a sort of groundedness. There's a plausibility uh, in the way the world works in a Clancy novel that I absolutely wanted to port into my science fiction. And certainly I'm not the first one to do it. I, I think I can certainly think of the first time, though, that I saw it happening was probably talking about Larry Niven, uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell's Footfall. Yeah. Footfall has has a Clancy feel written all over it, and yet is is science fiction, and and um, I I was very influenced by that book, not in terms of how I was going to structure the books I was going to write later, or even what I wanted them to be about, um, but but I said this model, uh, th- this sense of of uh, I could be there you know, is, um, is, was important to me, which is one of the reasons why I didn't set these books that far in the future. I think it was very important. One of the things that I wanted the books to do was to be, to some degree, a mirror held up to the consequences of some of the things we're doing right now. Um, and I don't mean that that is not hidden language for I'm a crusader for this or that or the other thing. I mean, everything. I mean, um, I mean, for instance, just how you know whether it's wealth, whether it's how we generate energy, whether it's the 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 sort of uh, the sort of things that we do with statecraft, whether it's the state of our space program or not. I mean, the bottom line is all of these things to me. I wanted these to be meaningful in the in the story that I was telling, in terms of that they that you feel you feel their the legacy of them in the way the situation starts out in the way we're well adapted for it, but also in the way we're very much not adapted for it. And there's a warning in there, I guess you would say, about, about my fear about, you know, I think in addition to the tragedy of how much of this, of our planet does not read, does not have clean water, does not have enough food, um, you know, you, you are making, you, you are inviting buyout. And in this case, where, some, where somebody or something is coming along and saying, uh, we're not your great friends, you know, those folks may not be very fast to get on the bandwagon because what did you ever do for them? And now all of a sudden you need them to come off the bench and be part of the team. That's not generally how reality works. And, uh, and, and so there's this part of me that is almost apolitically, though, sort of saying, I don't care what you're – there's a lot of reasons why I will not do anything partisan in a novel. Um, I, there's a whole bunch of reasons. That's a whole other interview, but, but I do think that, that I am mindful of just, I take a look at the world around us and I say, given the scenario that they start confronting in 2080 and which comes to a kind of head when the books, when fire with fire starts really in 2115, what would that look like? Because that's part of the reality too. Our past makes our present in the way that our present makes the future. So, um, so I didn't, I actually wanted that to be part of what I was doing. Which is, which is brilliant how you did that. Um, um, I think that's one of the things that, that writers tend to get complex with is, is 
envisioning the end instead of just telling the story and not, you know, saying, okay, I need to get my message in here and trying to write in there, I'm against big business or I'm against socialism, I'm against this, I'm against that, instead of just telling a good story. And how often do your characters surprise you with what they do and how they react? Or are you really the... uh, like Elwin Hubbard's typewriter in the sky where he just, you know, the, the author there is, is moving him along and making him do what he wants him to do. I, I would say that, I wouldn't say I'm surprised by the general arcs, but I can be surprised in the moment. And that probably comes from the way I actually built, write these books. Or, or, or it, It's probably not a secret because as you... As hopefully I will bait more people deeply on into this. There, there are a lot of mysteries set up in the first book that that aren't even fully, perhaps unfolded until the second and the third book, and they spawn more because we're we're newcomers on the block. Yeah, and it turns out that there was some very important stuff going on around twenty thousand years ago in this neighborhood. We don't know what it is. Only one group does. So as humanity confronts that, there's got, there's just a lot of sort of uh, kind of unique u- unique moments as as sort of confronting history uh, or history in the making, as you will. And so I know sort of the arcs of these things. And the reason I bring up that that you know that sort of large arc mystery is because. I would not. They, there's a term. You're, I know you're familiar with it, but I know I don't know how many of our our listeners will be. But to those of you who are aspiring writers, you are going to hear the term a pantser or a plotter. And a pantser is somebody who literally flies by the seat of their pants. They don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know what the story, and they're just sort of following instinct and whimsy and interest. A plotter is somebody who will tend to write everything out and then outline each chapter and may outline each scene. I don't do it that way. I know what's going to be in the novel. I, I know roughly what the major action points are going to be, more like the way you break down a, a cinematic script in sort of large action bites. And then I make notes on it. I'm usually making notes on something I write as much as two years before I write it. And then I gather them, and I, I sort of say what I keep, what it's going to get pushed later further down the line to another book. No, I'm going to use this. What part does it go into? Where is this best fit? And, and it, sort of, it sort of takes shape as, a, as an organic interactive process. What that does, though, is it means that although I kind of can feel where the characters, how they're going to feel, where they're going to go, I sometimes they surprise me how they get there. And that's fine uh, because that's, uh, I think that makes them feel real. We, we certainly don't know who we're going to be then in the next five minutes. We probably, under most circumstances, have a pretty good idea. But the best, the, some of the best moments in a character or in a book is when a character is confronted with something for which they're totally unprepared and something and a part of them comes out that they were they were not even fully cognizant was there and that is a wonderful moment for me and i i i, I gather from feedback it's a pretty cool moment for my readers too because it feels honest and yet at the same time it really is surprising so um and it comes from that that's how yeah. i sort of experience it as the writer i will go back to your comment the one one brief moment about not politicizing a novel when i was a teacher my students never knew what my politics were and that was an absolutely clear determination I made. The reason for that is I think I have, and I don't, I, I do not, this is only about me. I, I cast no judgments or aspersions upon anybody else. But I feel that part of my journey as somebody who's involved in the greater discourse of what we do in our society is to, 
is that if 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 I become partisan, then everybody has to naturally will look at what I write and say, oh, well, now we see how he's moving this agenda forward. Oh, this is what he re-. no. I can't, and you can't even do it once, you know, in a sense. You really can't do it once because there are certain things about which I am very partisan, but they're not political. I'm partisan about the power of love. I'm partisan about, about hope. I'm partisan about how those two things underlie and are the foundation for the kind of determination whereby humans succeed in the face of overwhelming odds. And, and you might call me, therefore, I guess, a, a, a partisan for what you might call evolutionarily proved virtues. And the moments, whatever is going on in, in the political fray of the moment, I'm, I will probably not, uh, I'm not going to touch that. Although I, I've had people who, to talk about the first novel, said, oh, so you hate corporations. You're obviously, you're obviously on the left. Then I had people who, you know, from another perspective say, oh, you showed that the UN was unable to take care of that situation. You're obviously on the right. I'm sitting there saying no. I'm I'm looking at what these how these institutions are formulated and organized, and what they probably would be good at and not good at. And that's all I'm doing. And if you want to bring something else to the party, I can't stop you. Yeah, and that's interesting because that's I don't know, how familiar are you with any of Elwin Hubbard's works. Um, r- relatively so. Yeah, because like in Battlefield Earth, when he wrote that, he did an interview in 1983 on that where he talks about the role of science fiction. And he says specifically with Battlefield Earth was his, one of the major purpose of that was that no matter what, the spirit of, of humanity will overcome. And it's, it's not a partisan thing. It's a very definite view he had. And that's from probably the golden age you know, mentality as well of science fiction that, that no matter what humanity, the spirit of man can overcome and can survive and will survive. And, you know, the way you're talking about it there, because with the contest that he created with Writers of the Future, which we was the subject matter we originally met on back in uh, a few years ago at DragonCon, yep. is it's not partisan at all. And it's just strictly about the story and the writer and aspiring writer and aspiring artist to, uh, to move forward. And, and I found that on all this, because I do all the social media, the, writer, the uh, podcast, the uh, mm-hmm. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, I don't do anything political. I, you know, there's not even any comments. I don't even get into liking or not liking a politician or a certain thing like that. I, just, I keep it straight. It's just on, on hat with that, which is one thing that Mr. Hubbard was very keen on is to validate the author, the aspiring author, and that's what's really important. That's why we've had winners from all over the world and all types of, of people. There's all types of races, religions, creeds, persuasions. It's just can they write a good story is what this is about. And I think that was one of our original discussions we had when we were talking about Writers of the Future at that one. Um, I think it was in a, was it, it was a party that, I, I guess it was the pre-party for the, where we were originally chatting. Dragon Awards. Dragon that's Awards, right. that's right. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, so I think that's really important on, on stuff. But have you, I think we'll touch on this and then we're going to wrap it up, but just on the subject of the golden age and, and uh, Elwin Hubbard was one of the major players in the golden age of science fiction under uh, Campbell. And, you know, I, I make these posts frequently on social about how Asimov talks about how great Hubbard is as a writer and Bradbury with their accolades about him as an author and how he inspired them on what they were doing. Any comments you've got to make about Hubbard's science fiction or fantasy that, 
um, affected you either way? Well, I can I can say this. Uh, I I <laughs> this is this goes into ancient history again. Yeah. Because I was I started when I when I, when I say that I don't mean that that therefore the the science fiction of that era is has fallen out of time. As a matter of fact, some of my my intent with my stuff was I felt what happened was that the golden age asked a lot of very good questions and a lot of a lot of them. I think what happens is some of those stories do show for with no 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 blame in this but they show their age so the question is can we can we still ask the same questions and maybe even come at them with some of the same optimism but just you know how can i how can i say it if we write it with the sensibilities of today it will it you know i think it succeeds um i think that's probably has a lot to do with with what modest success i've had Regarding L. Ron Hubbard and the others of the Golden Age, here's the difficulty of pulling the threads apart. L. Ron Hubbard was a name that also was right alongside, for me, reading as I grew up, Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and Leinster and Pohl, uh, the person who I think may have been one of the great prose masters of all time and just a, a wonderful, wonderful human being, Poole Anderson. And uh, and Gordon Dixon. I mean, all these people of the early, the late Golden Age going forward. Uh, I read them at an age when I wasn't even remembering names. But but L. Ron Hubbard was part of that. I guess you could say constellation. You know, uh, Alpha Scriptorus, if you will, <laughs> if, there, if it was going to be in the heavens. And he was one of those stars. And and those shone lights upon me, which uh, which still still illuminate to some degree my path today. So while I, I, I would be I would be fearful that I would I would identify a story and it would be like, no, that was Murray Leinster. You know, it's like, oh darn it. You know, yeah. <laughs> because I because I was I was reading at that age. We're talking about nine, 10, 11. It's and and at that age you're just sort of you're just lost in the wonder of it. And I knew I wanted to do this thing, but at that age I had I had no idea what path it would take, you know, and how you do that. How, how does one become this? Um, and it just seemed like a very, very far away, distant thing. Of course, so was the moon, but we got there and here I am. So I guess yeah. there you go. Keep hoping and keep believing. And that was, that was something that was in so much of, of all of that fiction. And I know was, and, and from the things that I do, that I do remember the more, the, the later work of, of Hubbard, uh, you know, I don't think even his worst detractors, and God knows every author has detractors and boosters, but no one could ever say that he was a depressive individual or a person who ever pointed at the limitations of humanity and and intelligence and hope. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's really, in this age, something that's really important. So... That's Thank good. you. Well, all those, all those folks to all of all of the stars in Alpha Scriptoris. Great. Well, thank you very much. And this has been an amazingly fun hour that we've just eaten up there with this uh, with this uh, little interview here. And there's gonna be a lot of people who are very anxious to uh, to uh, listen to you. Just real quickly now, where do people go to find your books, and where do you recommend? And then also, what do you recommend? Like you told me. You know, what you recommend to start with? So any recommendations on where to go and how to start? So um, depending on where they, when they hear this, assuming they hear it soon, probably the best, the best one to go to is the, the first book in the Cane Reorden series is Fire with Fire. 
There are five books out already. There are more contracted, um, and I, I have a I have an announcement I'd love to make, but I can't make it here. But some there are there are people whose whose universes I've written in who are now coming to write in mine, and that's a huge huge treat for me. And that's that's all unfolding over the next two to three years. So there's a lot going on. You can go to Bain Books. That is overwhelmingly my publisher. You can go to also something called Beyond Terra press beyond terra press and that is a part of wonderful chris kennedy publications that is an indie powerhouse um and that's where uh anything that bain doesn't have the space for because i could i could write a lot more than bain has room to print so they basically said well why don't you come on over here and we'll do an imprint that is exclusively caneverse and i said sounds like a plan it's been doing really well go there of course any amazon Barnes and Noble. If you enter my name, Charles E. Gannon, or if you enter Kane with an E on the end, or Kane Riordan for sure, you're going to come across it that way. Um, my uh, my look for just put in Charles E. Gannon or Chuck Gannon on Facebook. You're going to find me right away. Um, you will find me. Uh, my website is terribly hard to find. It's www.charlesegannon. Dot com, so um, so you know it's it's a it's a bear taking those spaces and that period out. But if you can remember to do that, you're going to find me, and uh, and that's pretty much uh, pretty much. If you put in Charles E. Gannon, you're going to find me because somebody once said to me, everything you do is part of your career. So I've kept it all under uh, one easy to find roof for folks out there. That's great. So thank you very much, Charles, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud and any other place that you get it. Plus, also, we just recently were um, listed with the United Public Radio Networks. We've been syndicated with them, which has been very exciting news for us. And uh, so check us out there, too. They are definitely worth listening to. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Chuck. Thank you for having me on, John.